You're listening to the Bravehearted Voices podcast. In this podcast, we feature sermons that deeply stir us toward Jesus Christ and living fully for His glory. As you listen to this powerful collection of communicators from yesteryear, it is our desire that you be stirred to live a life fully given to Jesus Christ and discover a Christianity that actually works. When I was 28 years old, I'm turning 40 in December. So, 12 years ago. I was in the hospital with a stress disorder. How Christian does that sound? I, I've been on Frontline's Christian ministry for right around 17, even 18 years. Less than I've been married, 16. And even before that, I was dealing... Uh, in ministry on the mission field. And so I know what it is to take a hit from the enemy. I know what it is to stand for truth. And yet I didn't know how to appropriate it in my life and in my soul. Because you can read about things in scripture and you can read about men who are scourged and get back up rejoicing. But if you're never trained in exactly what that is, uh, then sometimes you don't see it actually happening in you when you get uh, the lash on your back. And I was in the hospital, 28 years old, and Leslie was concerned that it was a heart attack. Uh, it turns out to be a stress disorder. I had a problem with handling my anxiety. And what's funny is I was the happiest guy you'd ever meet all growing up. And so always a big smile on my face up until right around, I don't know what it was, somewhere in the early 20s, right when I gave my life radically to Jesus Christ to serve him. And I remember one of the first things that happened in this process. I was a young buck, a young Christian guy ready to take on the world. I remember going to Bulgaria. Bulgarians hadn't even seen Christians for, you know, because of the, the wall of communism that had been there, we were some of the first ones to bring the gospel there. I was, some of, I was one of the first Christians that these Bulgarians had ever seen. And my prayer was, God, turn Bulgaria upside down in and through my life. Bulgaria didn't change much in that time. I did. And one of the first things a missionary needs to learn is oftentimes the mission is you. <laughs> As the missionary, God needs to do some work in you before he's able to leverage you to the fullest extent to see nations turned upside down. But I came back and Leslie and I got married and we were traveling around the country. One of our first speaking engagements we ever had was out, I think it was in Spokane, Washington somewhere. And I was speaking in a church on a Sunday morning. I think we were going to do our event that night. Speaking in a church that Sunday morning, and I spoke on my favorite subject, martyrdom. Now, it takes a weird sort of guy to have his favorite subject be martyrdom. I got up, and I spoke on martyrdom. And I remember this lady got up afterwards. We were talking in the back, and people were waiting in line, and she said something like, uh, the enemy wants to steal your joy. And I'm like, one big smile. The enemy wants to steal your joy. And my response was a cocky, well, he's not going to get it. <clears throat> well, if I was to describe what happened in the next few years of my life, it was that my joy was completely robbed. I was hit. I was pummeled. I mean, 
what lesson I went through, it's completely unfair and unjust for any young couple to experience it and to go through it. We were raked over hot coals, even by Christians. We expect the world to not like us, but Christians. And I didn't know how to process this. Well, here I am in my, even my first year of marriage, I'm, I'm laying on the floor paralyzed with anxiety. That was the beginning to show that when anxiety would come in, Eric didn't know how to process it very well. Okay, and all throughout uh, our ministry years, there would be times right before I would come out onto stage that the pressure, because what happens in an event when you travel around the country is when you come out on stage, that poor audience, they're innocent. They don't know what happens behind the scenes in Christianity. They don't know what it's like to deal with all the leadership. And so I'm dealing with all this stress, people that are robbing us of money, people that are falsely accusing us, people that are doing all this bizarre stuff that I can't believe it could happen under the banner of Christianity. I'm in the back right before I'm going to walk out, and I'm laying on the floor paralyzed with anxiety. Eric, this is Leslie's voice. Sorry, it sounded a little too deep. Eric, you need to get up. You need to speak. (laughs) I come out there. No one would know the difference. But something was weak in my life. I was vulnerable. The enemy would hit and I would just like fall down. And it wasn't that I didn't stand back up and say, for Jesus. But then he would come in and go, and I would just go again. So it was this ridiculous pattern of falling down. You know, my nose bent out of shape. You know, my body racked with pain. Standing up going, for Jesus. But it wasn't that impressive. And I remember God beginning to teach me something called tensile strength. And it all stemmed from me witnessing, it was like this clip from a movie uh, of John F. Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy when they were dealing with the Bay of Pigs, this huge decision, international uh, issue where, you know, millions of lives were at stake. And if they made a certain decision, millions of people would die. And yet if they made that decision, it may stem the tide and actually turn the occasion Uh, towards America's favor. How do you deal with something like that? And I remember watching it, and I was stressed. I was starting to get paralyzed. My same old, you know, physical reaction that would happen when it was my own issues. I was getting stressed just watching their issue. And that's when I realized, it was very clear, from heaven down to earth, Eric, I have a call on your life, and I want you to be in those type of positions and to be able to have a clear mind and to be able to be fit for the job of a leader. But look at you. You can't even watch someone else try and make a decision. And this is Hollywood. Eric, what's wrong with you? I called back and go, I don't know. But I don't have that. I cannot, I can't keep a straight mind. I can't keep a stable body. I can't, my soul is ruffled. I don't know how to stay still and calm in the midst of difficulty. And so that's when the progression ended up taking place to go after tensile strength. I was reading Passion and Purity, and Elizabeth Elliot said in Passion and Purity that there was a season of her life when God trained her in tensile strength. I remember thinking, what's that? Tensile strength. Not tinsel, like the stuff you stick on a Christmas tree. Tensile, like the number 10, T-E-N-S-I-L-E. Tensile strength. It's the strength of the measurement of, like, rope, or springs on a trampoline, they need to have a certain amount of tensile to be able to endure the weight that is uh, stretching them so that it doesn't collapse. Poor kid in the backyard jumping on his trampoline and snap, 
he goes to the ground, they need to have enough tensile to be able to handle the difficulty and the pressure that is coming against them. So if you want to measure the tensile strength of a rope, tie a big boulder around the end of your rope, throw it off the end of a cliff, the, the rock is falling and then it stops and there's a tension in the rope. The tensile of that rope is measured by how much weight it can carry and for how long it can carry it. That's its tensile strength. When a rock is knocked off the cliff in your life, how are you looking in your soul? When that boulder goes, and you get the tension in that rope, how do you measure out? Because when my soul was measured, as I was witnessing, because I, I mean, I can talk a big talk, but when the boulders get knocked off the, the, the cliff, that little pebble is falling down with a rope around it, and then, and suddenly Eric would just collapse, and that rope would snap. It's not a good trend. And so I asked God to begin to build me into a man, into a man that could handle weights, into a man that could handle difficulty. Not just difficulty, extreme difficulty. Remember, my favorite topic was martyrdom. Extreme difficulty. Men and women throughout the ages that have followed Christ to their end have been able to smile, have been able to sing, have been able to consider it their greatest moment on earth was when they were willing, when they, were, when they had the opportunity to let go of their life for Jesus Christ. So it's one thing to esteem it in sort of a poetic or a literary sense. It's like, how romantic. It's a whole other thing when you were measured against it. And it's your martyrdom. And it's you that needs to suffer. Because most of us can romanticize the end of Christianity. Well, some of us can. And we could say, oh, I would love to give my life for Jesus. And yet, on the daily level of our life today, the smallest trial comes, the most piddly difficulty, and we snap. This is our day of preparation. This is when we are made strong for then. And so if you don't take and claim the territory today, you cannot expect to be strong in that day. Extraordinary courage is the name of this message. This is from Fox's Book of Martyrs. As James, James is the brother of John, a disciple of Jesus, one of the three in the Garden of Gethsemane, one of the three on the top of the Mount of Transfiguration. This is no small guy in the history of Christianity. As James was led to the place of martyrdom, his accuser was brought to repent of his conduct by the apostles' extraordinary courage and undauntedness and fell down at his feet to request his pardon, professing himself a Christian and resolving that James should not receive the crown of martyrdom alone. Let's start, stop there for a second. A man has brought an accusation against James and exposed him. The government now responds because this is the first breakout against the Christians and they are looking for the leaders. And this man has exposed him. But James, his response to the fact that he's about to be beheaded is that he shows an extraordinary courage and undauntedness. In fact, it was such an extraordinary courage and undauntedness that his accuser is brought to repentance as he witnesses it. He had never seen anything like it. Whatever that man has, he must have. It must be real. And James, his accuser, actually becomes a Christian on the way to be, for James's beheading. 
Hence, they were both beheaded at the same time. Thus did the first apostolic martyr cheerfully and resolutely receive that cup which he had told our Savior he was ready to drink. That's an amazing statement. That's history. The men that walked with Jesus, how did they handle the most difficult trials? There was a pattern that was set in ancient Judea on how to handle the most difficult moments you could ever face in life. And what you'll see out of that pattern is that it sets forth what most of us would consider impossible. You can't expect someone to actually behave that way, though. I mean, this is, a, this is a dark moment. These are the moments when people start screaming. These are the moments when people start running and fighting against everything and squirming around saying, no! Yet that isn't how the men and women built by God responded. You know, there was a cheapo movie that came out in the 70s. In fact, I don't like it at all, and it was called Thief in the Night. And it was one of those movies that was Christian, okay? I'm putting quotations up for those that are hearing the audio of this. Quotations around Christian. Because how it portrayed the end times was that these Christians were being led away to slaughter and they were screaming as if it was the worst thing that could ever happen to them. No! You know that little kids grew up in that generation with nightmares and for an absolute terror over the fact that one day that may happen to them. That isn't the Christian message. You know, young kids that were raised in the early church, their dream was to die a martyr. Their dream was, bring it on, if I could just be the one chosen by God for such a privilege as this. In the early church, they had a problem, and that was that men and women were instigating their own martyrdoms because everyone wanted to die a martyr that the early church fathers had to issue an edict saying, hey, God loves the fact that you want to die for him, but he also wants you to know that he desires you to live for him also. So please, no initiating your own martyrdom. If he wants that to be your lot, then you can thank him, but it's at his bequest instead of yours, not you to do it. My lads... The captain shouted. Everything has been done for the ship that could be done. But as you see for yourselves, our efforts have been in vain. I trust that you will all get ashore. But as far as we can see at present, the rocks are almost precipitous. And high as they are, the spray flies right over them. So this is from a book by G.A. Hinty. And this captain, and he has this whole crew on board. And they're about to run uh, against the rocks. And as he's saying, there's no way of survival. We're all dying. I thank you all for your good conduct while the ship has been in commission and am sure that you will know how to die and will preserve your calm and courage till the end. Go to your stations and remain there until she is about to strike. Then each man must make the best fight for life that he can. All throughout this book, they're facing death-defying situations. And one of the things that G.A. Henty is famous for, that's why dads love to have their, you know, Christian dads love to have their boys read them, is because it shows high character. And that's exactly what this is. He's demonstrating this statement of saying, and you all, I'm presuming, know how to die well. Now, could you imagine that being said to us? Like a bomb is about to hit, and I'm like, and I just want to assure you, thank you all for your good conduct while being in church today. 
uh, I, I'm confident that you all will know how to die well. What does that mean? I don't know that I have that confidence about you, that you know how to die well. What does it mean to die well? And then he says, that, and you will preserve your calm and courage till the end. There's something that isn't right about when the bomb is about to hit to start screaming. There is something right about all the way to the end being marked by a calm and a courage to die well. And even the idea is sort of strange. Why would we ever talk about that in Christianity? We don't want to be morbid. We don't want to talk about things like this. You know that in Christianity, this is Christianity? Almost every other culture throughout history, when you choose to follow Jesus Christ, the issue of death is right in front of you. Do you realize that this will most likely cost you your life? I do. Do you understand the pattern that Jesus has set for us in regards to facing death? I do. Thank you for teaching it to me. So you understand how to die well? I do. You understand how to persevere to the end? I do. You know what it takes and you know what the equipment for that is? I do. It's Jesus Christ. He's the only way I can make it through this. And he will give me everything I need to do it right, to die well. The extraordinary attitude. Now, when we think about death, most of us have a negative perception of it. Now, some of us, if we've grown up in the church and we've had the right lens put on Christianity, we actually don't fear death. But for most people, it's so unknown. Even though the Bible gives a very clear description of what this is, we don't quite understand and comprehend what we're getting ourselves into. And even in Pilgrim's Progress, you know, it shows that, uh, that river, you know, that they have to pass through uh, right before they get to death. In other words, it is a certain darkness. It's an unknown. We don't quite understand how you enter into death with a calm and a courage. We don't even really understand what death is, how it all works. However, there's an attitude in Scripture towards death which is absolutely bewildering. And I want you to realize that there are all sorts of things in Scripture, if you really want to open your eyes, in the New Testament that are absolutely bewildering. I think I was saying to the students this week, I think it was this week, I think it was the students, I'm not sure, I've been doing a lot of talking lately. But it actually says, when you are falsely accused, be exceeding glad. Now, I don't know that many people that our natural default reaction to being falsely accused would be to be exceeding glad. You follow me? I don't know how many of us, if we were beaten and scourged, would get up and thank God for the privilege and go out rejoicing. Any more than I would think that any of us would have this attitude that Paul had towards death. To die is gain. Now, you notice I took out the front part of that scripture. For those of you that are, uh, if your book that you memorized growing up was Philippians. Philippians 1.21, there's a first half to that. To live is Christ, to die is gain. But I want you to focus on this part of it. This is a statement by the Apostle Paul, who's probably the best illustration on planet Earth, what Jesus Christ can do in and through a willing vessel on Earth. To die is gain. That's the attitude that was in Paul, the apostle. Death? Oh, it's an advantage. You know what the word gain is? That's as if you're cashing in on the ultimate reward. 
You have gained, and I'm reading this book about, you know, Navy ships. They're after the ultimate prize, which is a pirate ship full of all sorts of uh, game that has been, it is like in its hole. And if they could get that pirate ship, they all cash in. It's gain. It's advantage. Well, Paul is saying to die is advantage. It's a gain. It's the ultimate victory. That's the attitude of Scripture. And it isn't necessarily the attitude resident within most of us as Christians. We're preserving our skin, not making it available to God to say, do with it whatever you see fit. In fact, if you want to take any suggestions from me, God, could I die a martyr, please? Now, many of us want to bring that up. It's like, if we could, we would want to die the, you know, the old age, you know, just in our sleep. Something as painless as possible. But there is a mentality in Christendom that says the greatest gain you could ever have is to die well for Christ Jesus. Okay, now in this world, what would be one of the greatest achievements known to men? Now we have various ones like Nobel Prize, various things like that, you know, the presidency of the United States. That's an achievement. How about an Olympic medal? You know, there's certain ones of us, if we were going to pick which one we would go after, you know, it might not be the Nobel Prize, and it might not even be the presidency. As Lincoln said, that's hell on earth to be the president of the United States. And so if any of us have any clarity in our mind, we'd probably never want that position. But the Olympics, hey, it's like a moment of glory where you stand up there and your entire nation is crying because you did it, and it's for them. You know, your nation is uh, with you and behind you, and the national anthem is playing. Oh, I used to dream of those moments. I'd sort of stand there in my room and act like it was happening to me. There's something about it that's very attractive to the human soul. I want you to realize, as a Christian, you give up the Olympic medal on this earth. And you say, I'm after the real medal in heaven. It's known as the martyr's crown. It's the greatest achievement. It's the greatest gain any human could ever get. You want to know why Christians throughout the ages have esteemed it? It's because God esteems it. It is the man or woman who didn't just live well, but died well. And they died for the glory of Jesus Christ. To die is gain. It is the ultimate victory. It is the ultimate achievement. And if you are aiming at the heights of Christianity, then this is what you esteem. When you're in your private moments, you're, you're dreaming of what it would be like to stand before Jesus Christ and have him give you a crown, a martyr's crown. And then... In that dream, if it's a truly correct dream and you have a correct perception of who Jesus Christ is, you remove that crown and throw it at his feet and say, it's all unto you. But to have the privilege of taking that crown and throwing it, oh, that's good stuff. To die is game. Take it patiently. Now, that makes no sense to us, so I'm going to give you the scripture that it comes from. But this is actually one of the most extraordinary patterns that we're going to begin to unwrap as given in scripture to take it patiently. When you face difficulty, when you face suffering, when you face death, take it patiently. Patience to us today in modern America and in the English vernacular doesn't mean the same thing that it means in Scripture. I'll just prepare you for that. You know what what, what patience is in Scripture is tensile strength. It is extreme ability to endure great hardship. That's what it is. So to take it patiently, just listen to the scripture from 1 Peter here. 
When you do well and suffer for it, and you take it patiently, I added the and in there, this is acceptable with God. So let me read it to you again. And when you do well, in other words, you do the right thing. You live for Jesus Christ. You do the righteous behavior instead of the unrighteous. You do what this world may mock, but you do what is obedience unto Scripture and unto the living God. When you do well and suffer for it, and you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. Pleasing. It's an aroma that is sweet to God's nostrils. It's like, that's good. But you have to take it patiently. So what in the world is that? Hupomeno. It means the brave, calm, and steadfast courage of the Christian soul. So when we're saying to take it patiently, look at this description at the bottom. It means to remain unmoved, to not recede or flee, to stand fast amidst the most severe misfortunes and trials, and to hold fast one's faith in Christ to the end, to endure and bear ill treatments bravely and calmly. Bravely and calmly. No matter what misfortune is thrust upon you, no matter how difficult it is, if you are living rightly before Jesus Christ, you brave it calmly and you endure it steadfastly with a courage. And this is acceptable to God. This is pleasing to him. This brings a smile upon his lips. This is a delight to his heart. You want to show God the glory that is due his name. You want to show him a thanksgiving. You want to show him your worship in your life. Then you handle your suffering with hupomeno. Mark 13 says, And you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. That word endures, hupomeno. Okay? It's oftentimes trans translated as endure or patience. Okay? Or patiently. So, he that shall endure until the end, the same shall be saved. Okay, so you're hated, which isn't a fun thing. Okay, I don't know how many of us love that scripture and stick it up on our refrigerator. Uh, and you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. Could you imagine that's like the cutout and you like stick it on your clothing, you, you, know, you put it up on your wall. No one really wants that scripture, so we skip over it or we at least give it a glance and we nod along and go, hmm, that's too bad. And then we go on. But it's not like we want to meditate upon that too much or like help it along. We don't want to be hated of all men. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. So here's what I've done with these next few scriptures. I've taken some of the scriptures, just a few of them, that, in, that involve the word hupomeno, and I've changed it out with a fuller definition, right? Like you see, endure is emboldened there. So in the next one, same scripture. And you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that shall show a brave calm and a steadfast courage unto the end, the same shall be saved. This is an enormous dimension to the Christian life. This isn't just like the bonus for the few people that are going to die a martyr out there. And it's so critical to realize that the substance of heaven deposited on the day of martyrdom is something that is 
familiar to the soul of a Christian when they arrive at that day because they've experienced the steadfast courage and the brave calm of God throughout a thousand moments throughout their life. So they're familiar and they're acclimated and they know that in that testing, in that difficult time, God will come through and give them everything they need. You know, there were 10 virgins that had oil. Five of them, all 10 started out with oil. Five of them sort of lost the oil. You know, they spent it and they never replaced it. And when the bridegroom came, they didn't have what they needed in their lamps. One of the number one things we as Christians need is to make sure that our lamps are full. That when the bridegroom comes or the difficulty comes in our life, the great challenge awakens in our life, that we have in our sole possession that which is needed to show a brave calm and a steadfast courage. So this is, I'm going through a list of different uh, scriptures that have upomono uh, in, in them. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. So rejoicing in hope, showing a brave calm and a steadfast courage in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. That would be a great scripture for you guys to spend the week studying. That is what a breakdown of the life lived as a Christian. Rejoicing in hope, showing a brave calm and a steadfast courage in tribulation and continuing instant in prayer. So in 1 Corinthians 13, 7, it's that list of what love is. And so I put love at the front just so you remember it, even though it's not necessarily in 1 Corinthians 13, 7. So love, dot, 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 beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, and endureth all things. So here's what love is. It beareth all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and shows a brave calm and a steadfast courage in all things. Well, how many of you have ever thought of defining love that way? That's love. That's the evidence of God within you. You will know my disciples by their love. I never thought about saying you'll know my disciples by their brave, calm, and steadfast courage. That's sort of a strange twist on it. This is what love is. It's love unto your king. He says, this is my pattern that I've set for you, and I will give you everything you need to live it out. Hebrews 12 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. That's the same word. That's how Jesus endured. That is what he had. It was that substance of love at the cross despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God for consider him that endured same word such contradiction of sinners against himself lest you be wearied and faint in your minds so if you're starting to get a little weary and faint in your own mind thinking I don't know that I can handle this I don't know that I can handle this there has been an example set out for you Jesus has done something that we are supposed to reflect upon. And most of us, when we, when we reflect upon how Jesus faced the cross, we go, yeah, but he was God. He set the example. It is his example, and he says, follow it. And I'll, I'll show you that in Scripture, that that example of how he faced the cross is actually your example. Not just make you feel bad of how unlike that example you are, but to give you the courage that lest you be wearied and faint in your minds, Remember it. Consider it is what it says here. Consider him who dealt with this, who patiently endured, 
who with a brave calm and a steadfast courage walked the Via Dolorosa. So here's the extended scripture with the brave calm and steadfast courage uh, injected. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him with a brave calm and a steadfast courage endured the cross despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that so bravely and courageously endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Following the example, facing death like Jesus. Now, most of us, when we think of the death of the cross, we say, well, that was, that was a special death, and it was. It was Jesus that carried the weight of sin, and it was the wrath of God was poured out on him, not on you, on him. So yes, the cross is special in certain regards, but it's a template in other regards. It is a pattern of the kingdom that when a righteous man stands up, he will receive the worst that the enemy can, can bring out against him, that he will be persecuted, that he will suffer. But that suffering will bring a sweet fragrance before the throne of God and will ultimately be turned into the ultimate triumph on earth. So following the example, facing death like Jesus. So basically, if I'm going to give a nutshell of what this message is, it's learning to face death the way Christ faced death. If you could take anything out of the Christian life, that's a good one to take. Now, you don't want to leave anything else behind. Don't get me wrong. It's not like we have to just pick one thing. But if there's a, a major hole in most of our spiritual lives, it's being able to have a confidence that we will face death the way Jesus Christ faced death. I mean, he did it right. What he did is so extraordinary, too, if you, if you think about it. He's God. And he's falsely accused. And he doesn't even open his mouth. He is reviled, and yet he doesn't revile in return. How in the world can he do that? Because if you're falsely accused, you know what your immediate response of soul is? To clarify that that is incorrect and to justify who you are. It's just how we work. And if any of you have ever had a twinge a false accusation come against you. You know what rises up within you. Could you imagine being treated as a common criminal? Being set between two thieves, being stripped naked, being spat upon, being abused, mocked. There's a crown of thorns placed upon his head. They stick a reed in his right hand and struck, strike him as if to mock him, saying, you really are a king, huh? Well, you're an impotent one. Was he impotent? Oh, no way. He, just with a slight glance towards heaven, could have called forth that legion of angels to decimate all of Jerusalem that would dare mock him. What would we do? We'd probably call the legion of angels. If we had it at our disposal, you've got to be kidding. No one's going to do this to me. Jesus died right. What Jesus did was an example. And he says, follow so following the example, facing death like Jesus. Let's look at 1 Peter 2.20. Now, this is the scripture that we started with. Now I'm going to add the next scripture to it. And when you do well and suffer for it, and you take it 
patiently, there's our word, take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were you called. This is what you're called unto. To bear it with a calm, a brave calm and a steadfast courage. This is part of your calling. Well, I'm called to China. You are called to, in the midst of suffering, bear it and endure it with a brave calm and a steadfast courage. You are called to face the most challenging things any human could ever face, but to do it right. To do it the way Jesus did it. For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Well, Jesus' death was different. I don't need to do that. I'm human. So was he. Did you know that Jesus was human as well? He was God, and he was man. And as a man, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He knew he was equal with God, but he deliberately condescended to participate in this life as a man dependent upon God the Father. He didn't exert his godness. He lived as a man even though he was God to demonstrate to all of us how a man ought to live so that we couldn't take his example and say, but he was God. Well, he was God, which is why he did it perfectly. But he set forth an example of how you too should live. Guess how you should live it? with the enabling power of God, the same way he did. He did it perfectly, and you may not. But it's the same pattern. A man yielded. He only did that which the Father was doing. He only spoke that which the Father was speaking. You were to only do that which Jesus is doing and only speak that which Jesus is speaking. It's a life wholly given. And your power will be the same power he had, the Spirit of Almighty God. He was enabled to carry forth and model a life. And his death was an example for us. There was a brave calm and there was a steadfast courage. And you could say that is preposterous. No one could possibly live this way. And I would challenge you to look at Christian history. And I would say, hmm, before you come to a conclusion, a quick conclusion based on modern thought, because Christians today don't like to refer to the great triumphant Christians of old. We'd rather refer to Christians around us that are living in futility because that justifies our futility and our marginalization of the scriptures. But when you bring up the triumphant pictures of old, all it does is indict us as modern Christians. It's like, what is wrong with us? There is something wrong, but it doesn't mean it can't be repaired. We have the hope of Jesus Christ, and he is willing to do in us as a church precisely what he's done in any other age. In fact, maybe even more. If we would allow him to have the room to maneuver and allow him to define what Christianity is to look like, instead of our public opinion polls amongst the Christians to say, well, yeah, I mean, I don't know about that. I, I, I picked this thing, but I'd, let's, let's scrap that. Jesus has defined Christianity in the word of God. It's done, it's said, and he didn't stutter when he did it. And he says, this is the way it's always been. And he doesn't change yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same. In him is no shadow of a turning. He is the same God, and his commission to the Christian is the exact same. And the equipment to carry out Christianity is the exact same. It hasn't altered. It hasn't diminished. And I'll stand on that point for the rest of my life. 
I will not back down. I do not believe that the equipment for Christianity mysteriously disappeared in the past few generations. And now we're left to our own devices, our own wit and wisdom, our own willpower to suddenly have to carry out the same commands of Scripture. That's preposterous. I'm not about to sit around when that ridiculous heresy is floating around in Christianity and not say something in response. The same equipment has been made available to us as Christians today. And therefore, the same expectations of what Christianity should be should be held up high in the modern church. It doesn't say that, now this is my collection of this. You know, Stephen was stoned, Philip was crucified, Matthew was slain. It doesn't say Stephen died in old age, you know, with a cough. Philip was, uh, you know, surrounded in his nursing home uh, by the ones he loved and he, you know, said his last words. Stephen was stoned, Philip was crucified, Matthew was slain with the sword, James, the brother of Jesus, was stoned and clubbed, Matthias was stoned and beheaded, Mark was dragged to pieces, Jude was crucified, Bartholomew was cruelly, Bartholomew was cruelly beaten and then crucified, Thomas was thrust through with a spear, Luke was hung, Simon was crucified, and John was thrown into a cauldron of boiling oil and removed unscathed and then exiled to Patmos. <clears throat> Ready to join the club? This is Christianity. This is the, these are the heroes of Christianity. And we desire to be treated differently than them. I mean, we're, we're, Jesus died for us. We don't need to suffer and die. He suffered and died. We, we, what, what is this? Where did this list come from? Who came up with that? That's history. It's a testimony throughout history under the church. And you know that those aren't, that isn't bad news to the Christians? It's like, oh, no, I don't want to be a Christian. I want to be a Christian. I just read that list. I bask in that list because these men didn't die futile deaths. Their deaths were not screaming deaths, you know, being dragged to the end. They were deaths marked by extraordinary bravery and courage. So let me give you a little taste of it. The Apostle Andrew. I didn't have Martyr's Mirror, where I got this story from. It was written in the 1500s, but it's the compilation. And then you have Fox's Book of Martyrs. There's various books that compile the, the martyrdoms of the, the church throughout the ages. But Andrew, the brother of Peter, was dragged before the governor Aegeus. And Aegeus sat him down on the other side. I at least picture it, sitting down on the other side of a table. And he said, if you don't stop preaching this cross and this Jesus that died upon it, then I'm going to crucify you on one too. And Andrew's response, you talk about a brave calm and a steadfast courage. He looks back at this governor who has the power on earth to do exactly what he's saying he can, he want, he's going to do. And he looks back at him and says, I would not have preached the glory of the cross of Christ if I was also not willing to die upon it. So the governor says, oh, Really? And he dragged Andrew out and put two pieces of wood together in the shape of an X. That's why the symbol of, an X is a symbol of Andrew throughout Christian history. And Andrew was tied. He wasn't nailed, he was tied. And he hung there for three days. Every bone out of joint. It's extreme pain. Crucifixion is extreme pain. Whether you're, you know, nailed or not, nails will help you die faster. But you can't breathe so every bone immediately comes out, not immediately, but it eventually comes out of joint as you're trying to hold your body up without the ability to hold it up in a normal way. Extreme pain, extreme torment. You know what he does the entire time? He preaches Jesus Christ to every passerby. 
And after three days, the saints who did not want to lose Andrew, could you imagine you have one of the ones that actually walked with Jesus, he's still alive. They come into Governor Aegeus and they plead with him. They say, he's paid his time. He's been penalized, but he's not dead yet. Could you take him down and give him back to us? And when the apostle Andrew finds out, catches wind of what the saints are trying to do, he cries out to heaven. He says, Jesus, I've spent my time among men. All I want is to be with you. That's how he went. And you want to know why I want to die a martyr? Because that's good. That's the way it should be with triumph. Is he afraid of death? No, he wants it. To die is gain. That's just the first story. Peter, as it says in Fox's Book of Martyrs, Jerome says of Peter that he was crucified, his head being down and his feet upward. Himself, Peter, actually requiring it because he was, he said, unworthy to be crucified after the same form and manner as the Lord was. So Peter's being brought to crucifixion, and they're going to crucify him upright. And he actually asks to be crucified in a different form, head down. You know that he actually chose a more painful death because he felt unworthy to die in accordance with the same form as his master. How many of you are up for death in the first place, yet when you are brought to that place, you actually choose a more painful one? What is this? What are we looking at here? This is a brave calm and a steadfast courage unto the end to honor Jesus, not to just think about your own skin and the own, your own synopsis in your body and what that's going to feel like. I want to honor my king to the very end. Paul. The soldiers came and led him out of the city to the place of execution where he, after his prayers made, gave his neck to the sword gave his neck didn't fight didn't scream and say no you got the wrong guy hey you're gonna pay for this someday he gave his neck like a lamb going to slaughter you know that's what a lamb does it actually stretches out its neck like a lamb going to the slaughter paul stretched out his neck he gave his neck brave calm steadfast courage Having come to Smyrna, he wrote to the church at Rome, exhorting them not to use means for his deliverance from martyrdom. No one wants to lose Ignatius. Ignatius is the disciple of John. Okay, we're, we already lost all these other, you know, apostles. We don't want to lose Ignatius. And so they are going to seek means for his deliverance. And he says, no, don't seek means for my deliverance, lest they should deprive him of that which he most longed and hoped for. He wanted to die. He's going to be fed to the lions, people, and he doesn't want to be delivered. Okay, if you're going to pick your death, I mean, you could be crucified, you could be cut into pieces, you could be dragged, you could be beheaded, you could be fed to wild beasts. He is going to be fed to wild beasts, and that has to rank pretty high on the I don't want to do this list. And he says, no, this is what I desire. What is the statement? What he most longed and hoped for. What is this? Now I be, this is what Ignatius said. Now I begin to be a disciple. 
I care for nothing of visible or invisible things so that I may but win Christ. Let fire and the cross, let the companies of wild beasts, let breaking of bones and tearing of limbs, let the grinding of the whole body and all the malice of the devil come upon me. Be it so, only may I win Christ Jesus. That's the man who was discipled by the Apostle John, who was discipled by our Lord Jesus. These men had something that is foreign to us today. And even though that seems foreign to you, I would trust the men discipled by Jesus more than I would just some guy running around saying, run for your life! I want this. I choose this. This is still Ignatius. And even when he was sentenced to be thrown to the beasts, such as the burning desire that he had to suffer, that he spoke what time he heard the lions roaring, saying, I am the wheat of Christ. Could you imagine? He's being fed to the lions right now as this quote is coming out. I am the wheat of Christ. I am going to be ground with the teeth of wild beasts that I may be found pure bread. He actually referred to the lions as his friends because they were the ones that were going to take him into the very presence of the one he loved. Eustachius. Eustachius, a brave and successful Roman commander, this guy is literally, if you ever saw the movie Gladiator, this is the equivalent. This guy was a successful commander, was by the emperor ordered to join in an idolatrous sacrifice to celebrate some of his own victories. But his faith, being a Christian in his heart, was so much greater than his vanity that he nobly refused it. Enraged at the denial, the ungrateful emperor Adrian forgot the service of this skillful commander and ordered him and his whole family to be martyred. Just celebrate the idolatrous feast, buddy. Don't make an issue. Instead, with a nobility of soul, he says, I can't participate. And he and his whole family are decimated. Faustines and Jovita. At the martyrdom of Faustines and Jovita, brothers and citizens of Brescia, their torments were so many and their patience so great. Patience so great. Do you see that? That's the same concept that Colosserus, a pagan, beholding them, was struck with admiration and exclaimed in a kind of ecstasy, great is the God of the Christians, and for which he was apprehended and suffered a similar fate. What a story. The intrepidity of the sufferers. I added this one in just because I thought it was such a great statement. The cruelties used in this persecution were such that many of the spectators shuddered with horror at the sight and were astonished at the intrepidity, the complete boldness and courage and daring. Intrepidity means an indomitable presence. They move forward without blinking, without shuddering. It's intrepidity. And in the, the spectators are shuddering. And yet the Christians are moving forward with an intrepidity of the sufferers. Some of the martyrs were obliged to pass with their already wounded feet over thorns, nails, sharp shells, etc. upon their points. Others were scourged until their sinews and veins lay bare. And after suffering the most excruciating tortures that could be devised, they were destroyed by the most terrible deaths. Germanicus. Germanicus, a young man but a true Christian, being delivered to the wild beasts on account of his faith, behaved with such astonishing courage that several pagans became converts to a faith which inspired such fortitude. That's the pattern. The pattern is the world watches how we respond. Have you noticed? That's the third or fourth story already 
that says the onlookers actually converted because of the courage. The brave, calm, and steadfast courage is the message of heaven to the soul that is being awakened. Polycarp. Polycarp, the venerable bishop of Smyrna, hearing that persons were seeking for him, escaped, but was discovered by a child. After feasting, the guards who apprehended him, he desired an hour in prayer, which being allowed, he prayed with such fervency that his guards repented that they had been instrumental in taking him. He was, however, carried before the proconsul, condemned and burnt in the marketplace. The proconsul then urged him, saying, Swear, and I will release thee. Reproach Christ. Polycarp answered, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? At the stake to which he was only tied, but not nailed as usual, as he assured them he should stand immovable, the flames on their kindling the faggots encircled his body like an arch without touching him. And the executioner on seeing this was ordered to pierce him with a sword when so great a quantity of blood flowed out as to extinguish the fire. But his body at the instigation of the enemies of the gospel, especially Jews, was ordered to be consumed in the pile and the request of his friends who wished to give it Christian burial rejected. They nevertheless collected his bones and as much of his remains as possible and caused them to be decently interred. John Huss. This is John Huss speaking. God is my witness that I have never taught that of one which I have been accused by false witnesses. In the truth of the gospel which I have written, taught, and preached, I will die today with gladness. There upon the fire, he was going to be burned at the stake, there upon the fire was kindled with uplifted voice, Huss sang. He's singing. Christ, thou son of the living God, have mercy upon me. And when he started this for the third time and continued, who art born of Mary the Virgin, the wind blew the flame into his face. He still moved lips and head and then died of suffocation. Timothy and Mara. Timothy, a deacon of Mauritania, and Mara, his wife, had not been united together by the bands of wedlock above three weeks when they were separated from each other by the persecution. Timothy, being apprehended as a Christian, was carried before Arrhenius, the governor of Thebes, who, knowing that he had the keeping of the Holy Scriptures, commanded him to deliver them up to be burnt. To which he answered, so he's been asked for his Bible to be delivered up so that the Bible would be burnt. He said, had I children, I would sooner deliver them up to be sacrificed than part with the word of God. The governor, being much incensed at this reply, ordered his eyes to be put out with red-hot irons, saying, the book shall at least be useless to you, for you shall not see to read them. His patience, there's the word again, under the operation was so great that the governor grew more exasperated. He, therefore, in order, if possible, to overcome his fortitude, ordered him to be hung up by the feet with a weight tied about his neck and a gag in his mouth. In this state, Mara, his wife, tenderly urged him for her sake to recant. But when the gag was taken out of his mouth, instead of consenting to his wife's entreaties, he greatly blamed her mistaken love and declared his resolution of dying for the faith. The consequence was that Mara resolved to imitate his courage and fidelity, and either to accompany or follow him to glory. The governor, after trying in vain to alter her resolution, ordered her to be tortured, which was executed with great severity. After this, Timothy and Mara were crucified near each other, A.D. 304. There's one story that I just want to throw in because it had a big impact on my life, and that is back in, I think it was the 15 or 1600s, churches were sort of meeting underground at the time. 
uh, and this one church was raided, and the pastor, if they, they felt that if they could just extinguish the pastoral leadership, they would disband the church. And so they took the pastor, and they were going to burn him at the stake. And the congregation was pleading with him, saying, please don't leave us. You know, all, he, all these guys had to do was recant. All they had to do was make a clear statement that, you know, whether, whatever ruling authority was a higher authority than Jesus Christ, or that Jesus, they'd have to blaspheme Jesus Christ, or burn the scriptures, spit on the scriptures. Didn't seem that difficult, and they wouldn't do it. And this, this pastor, as he was leaving, the, the con- congregants were saying, but what if we are asked to follow? What if they want to kill us? We don't know if we have what you have. And he said, come to the burning tomorrow. If God enables me in the midst of the flames to endure, when the ropes burn away, I will raise my hand amidst the flames to indicate to you that God is with the sufferer. And so the congregants witnessed. And I can't tell you, this has to be one of the most extraordinary moments I've ever heard of. But could you imagine, first of all, when you experience extreme pain, the human body faints. It passes out. When you are in the midst of a fire, you know what the first thing the body would do? It just faints. I mean, come on, you can't endure. I mean, you'd burn your finger on the edge of an iron and you're not doing too well. How about your whole body at once? He's in the midst of the flames. Could you imagine this? The congregants are standing before him. The ropes finally burn through and amidst the flame, a hand rises. That's good. Joshua Giovanello one of the Waldensians in the Italian Alps in the midst of the massive attack uh, on all Christians. His wife and his son were captured and mutilated. So this isn't a pretty story. And they told him, they said, when we capture you, we will do the worst to you if you don't recant. And he said, 10,000 deaths of such a kind would be too few to express my love for Jesus Christ. 10,000? Most of us are just bracing ourselves for one right now. Can we handle one? This man said 10,000 of such a kind would be too few to express my love, my ardent devotion to my king. Bring it on! Do what you want, but my heart is committed and there is nothing that can separate me from the love of my God. No matter what you bring against the Christian, we are resolute in soul. And we have our king as an inheritance. And this temporal world will pass away. And that death is gained to me. Bring your best. But I know that I live on in the presence of my almighty king. Dying today. The brave, calm, and steadfast courage in everyday life. The danger of such a message is to isolate it only to an extreme point in your future. And a lot of us think, when I am thrown into a concentration camp, then I'll start behaving as Betsy Tenbu. It's like, well, then I'll do that. Because that's, it's situations like that that draw out true Christianity. True Christianity has to be drawn out now. You know how many men and women throughout history have come to those points and denied Jesus and have recanted? They wouldn't be asking Christians to do it if they didn't do it at times. You must be prepared today with the substance of Jesus Christ so firmly in your soul that when you arrive at that day, there is substance to be drawn from. Do you remember the the statement? I think it's in uh, 
the hiding place. And Corey Tenboom's dad makes a statement to Corey. And Corey, they were, they were getting ready to, I think they were going to be traveling. I'm not exactly sure. Maybe it was just a reference to when they traveled. But her dad was asked the question by Corey because Corey was concerned about how she could possibly endure difficulty in the future, maybe even torment, torture, or death uh, at the hands of evil men and women. And her dad said, Corey, when we get on the train, when do I give you the ticket? And she said, well, right before we get on. And he said, exactly the same with your God. When you need the grace, he gives it to you. You will have everything you need if you learn then, if you learn to have everything you need now. For every situation, when you learn to walk rightly before your God and to take the challenges of today, the moments in today when God is saying, I need you to die. Because death isn't just some day in the future when you, you know, pass on to an eternal realm. It is today. The day of death is now. It just may not be physical. But there is a part of you that wants to live, that wants to exert its strength, that wants to cry out when you feel pain, that wants to bemoan and complain when you face difficulty. That part of you needs to be silenced. And you need to give voice to the part of you that is Jesus Christ rising up within. When he was reviled, he reviled not. Well, when you were reviled by your circumstances, when you were reviled by your bank account, when you were reviled by these different aspects of your life, how are you responding? Are you reviling back? Stupid bank account. Stupid boss who didn't pay me enough. Stupid government who took that out of my paycheck. Whatever it is, how are you responding? We face difficulties daily. I don't know what life you live, but that's a statement that is clear for me and everyone I know and talk with. Life is full of challenges. But if you don't take those challenges and learn to respond rightly, what makes you think in the greater challenge is that you're going to respond with a greater sense of dignity and calm and bravery and courage? This is your day of preparation. If you are being prepared for the beaches of Omaha Beach in the future, if you knew that something so great and terrible was ahead of you, boot camp is necessary. You know that those men were trained and groomed how to live under fire how to live in those situations where they're being attacked so that in those moments they wouldn't cower. There's nothing worse than being in that moment and cowering, screaming, hollering, trying to rescue your own skin as opposed to facing it and taking it with patience. Now we need to redefine what patience is in our modern vernacular for this, but facing it with a brave calm and a steadfast courage. You have the opportunity today to do this right. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Now, this is first of all talking about Jesus himself. But it's a pattern. Jesus set for us an example. that a man dies... And out comes great fruit out of his life, which is the fruit of the spirit life within us. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. 
We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Have you ever seen two scriptures so tremendously juxtaposed? Look at that. 36 and 37 of Romans 8. Let's just read halfway through and stop. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Period. Don't, don't keep reading. That's it. Well, that doesn't sound like very good news. That's how most people view martyrdom. They stop right there. But there's another sentence. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. You're not losing in that moment. You're not defeated. You're a conqueror in that moment. In fact, let's go to the full enunciation. You are more than a conqueror in that moment. There's victory to be had in it because the onlooking world is standing back and saying, what do they have? Persecutors throughout history that have had to deal with Christians have been so exasperated because no matter what they bring against the Christian, the Christian responds in love. They bring their best, their hardest blows, their most inventive tortures, and the Christian responds with love. You have the privilege of showcasing Jesus Christ in your little miniature moments of today. How are you responding when that trial hits you? Do you break out in frustration and yell? Do you, when you look at Ignatius and how he handled the lions, why don't you grab from his example and say, Jesus Christ, form it in me? I want to give you a quick breakdown of how to get the substance of heaven inside of you. It's going to be very quick. You need Jesus to wrap you in the purchase of the cross. Cloak of righteousness. I want you to seek it right now because there's no way into his presence. And his presence is where all the equipment for Christianity is. You cannot muster it up in your own strength, in your own wit and wisdom and willpower. You can grit your teeth and say, I'm going to die well. And you will find yourself not dying well on a daily basis because you are alive. And if you are offended, the world knows it. And you can try and be quiet, but then it eventually comes out in some big combustion. We don't die well without Jesus. Jesus is the secret to dying well. We die well today, all day long. We're no longer alive. It's Christ who lives in us. That's the secret to dying well, is we learn to die well daily. And then when we end this race and death comes and they ask us to recant, to spit upon the Bible, to do something that is so extraordinarily wrong that we say, not in your life. My Jesus, this is a privilege. To die is gain. We start today. You need to get into the presence of God because in the presence of God is a treasure chest. And in that treasure chest is all the purchase of the cross. The entirety of the presence of God made available to men and women on earth to be able to enact, to be able to actually live out the gospel command. These aren't just highfalutin poetic statements. There is substance in heaven in the very presence of God for the taking. But the only way to get into the presence of God is through Jesus Christ and his suffering and through his bloodshed. And so wrap yourself in the merits of that cross. You need it. Without that, he did what you couldn't do. You can't enter the presence of God. You have to be perfect, without spot, without any defect upon your soul. 
He's the one that lived it. So wrap yourself in that so that you can enter the presence of God. Come to him and say, Jesus, what you did I need, and I believe it's for me. And he wraps you in it. And that wrapping is an entrance. It's a way into the secret to life working, which is the presence of God. Most Christians say that Christianity and what the gospel is is all about Jesus Christ forgiving our sins and washing us clean. But the reason Jesus Christ gave us that cloak and washes our sin and, and forgives us isn't just the end. It's the beginning. Because it's that washing and that forgiveness that brings us into his almighty presence so that we can partake of him. And he is the solution to your life. You want to live this life well? Get into that throne room of grace and open up the treasure chest, which is the life of Jesus Christ, and say, have me. Take this. Use this body for your glory. And then we'll be comparing notes as you move forward, and we'll be talking about the fact that who in this generation, who in this congregation is going to have the privilege of the martyr's crown? That's the great question. Which of us will get the privilege? Not the penalty, the privilege. Let's learn to die well today. In every situation, only you know the situations in your life that you've been bucking up against. That when they've reviled you, you've reviled them back. I want you to learn to celebrate these little moments in your life and allow that brave calm and that steadfast courage to envelop and to enfold your inner man. So that in those moments, you showcase heaven. And everyone around you, when they watch you, when they're seeing you go through this difficulty, yet they see your attitude through it, they're brought to Jesus Christ too. That's Christianity. They witness it, and they witness it in your hardest moments. Not your easiest moments. In your easiest moments, any of us can have a good mood. Any of us can be brave in our good moments. It's the most difficult moments that showcase Christianity. So take advantage of them. Let's pray. Holy Father, you set an example. And we say thank you. Thank you for what you've done. Lord, we can try our best and grit our teeth to follow your example, but we need you to enable us to follow your example. So Lord Jesus, come upon us and take us. Take these hands, take these feet, take these hearts, take these minds and make them yours. Make them your body. Lord Jesus, for you and for your glory, we need a brave calm and a steadfast courage for what awaits us. Do it in us, Lord Jesus. Amen. Bravehearted Voices is brought to you by the Ministry of Deeper Christian in partnership with Ellerslie Discipleship. Our passion is to help you grow spiritually by providing Christ-centered resources, discipleship, and training in the Word of God and the victorious life of Christ. Our agenda is to bring back the stuff of old the sort of Christianity that is lived out with the gusto of heaven and actually and practically works. For more, visit BraveHeartedVoices.com.